Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson. Today, August 19th. Means it's time for episode 78. Just ahead, a global chip shortage. You've heard about it. Now one of the world's biggest automakers is slashing production. And could the SEC shut down Robinhood's most important revenue source? Does Robinhood even care? And perhaps the biggest story of the day, Illumina, front-running regulators in Europe and the US, buying a $7 billion genetic cancer testing company, bringing those tests to the masses. We're gonna have an exclusive, extensive interview with the man behind the deal, Illumina's CEO, Francis D'Souza. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings wait, call. Wait, there's Era News. Corey, okay, Corey, Era's great. Era's got a big new investment from Citi, Franklin Templeton, Finn Venture Capital. Era's uh, got some a bigger uh, venture investment. We uh, Congratulations to Ken Sen and the whole team over there because Era helps us not only by yeah. helping to sponsor the show, but also by helping us pick these sound bites every day. Yeah. So good on them for this great big new strategic investment. Congratulations, Era. That's great for Ken and Era. Good for Era. Also, you can listen to The Drill on any of your favorite podcast platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, Amazon, Audible, TuneIn. But hit that subscribe button to catch every single show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod. And connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got the business stories behind some stocks on the move. And wow, what an interesting day on the news front, Isaac. Tell me the three most important developments in the world of business today, Isaac Webster, our it was, executive producer. Corey, I got to say, it was hard to pick three today, but let's start with Amazon. Amazon plans to start opening lar- several large physical retail locations in the U.S. These will function mu- much like a traditional tra- department store. Now, all this is according to the Wall Street Journal. This expansion into brick-and-mortar retail is said to be intended to help Amazon extend its reach in sales of clothing, household items, electronics, and everything else Amazon sells. Now, some of the first Amazon department stores are expected to be located in Ohio and California. Ohio? Ohio. And these new retail spaces will be around 30,000 square feet, which is smaller than most department stores, which typically are about 100,000 square feet. The cruel irony, of course, is that so many department stores, which were so levered up when Amazon came on the scene, were driven out of business by Amazon. Now Amazon opening up physical bookstores, physical department stores. Um, we'll, we'll see now uh, these Amazon uh, scoops that that appear every once in a while. Amazon tries everything under the sun. They don't always stick with it. They want to see they're they're quite willing to take chances on things. But it's an interesting development. I agree. Well, all those empty storefronts, easy for Amazon to just move into. Now, number two, Adobe is acquiring Frame.io for about one point three billion in cash. Frame.io is a startup which makes video collaboration software. Now, Bloomberg reports that Adobe CEO Scott Belsky said Adobe wanted to buy Frame.io, Frame.io, I should say, after it realized its customers were were using it with Adobe's suite of products. 
Frame.io serves clients such as broadcasters, media agencies, and brands. And, you know, we use Frame.io sometimes with this podcast. And uh, it was started back in 2015. It's backed by Insight Partners and Excel. Uh, Well, you know, instead of having my own expert scoop on this, Mm -hmm. editor extraordinaire Ben Wilson's with us. Ben, (gasps) tell us, what is Frame.io? You're you're a video editor as well as an editor of this pod. Yes, I am. It's good to be here. Three's a party. Um, I was stoked when I heard the news that Frame.io is joining the Adobe suite um, in a sense because that seems to be the missing link for Adobe is it has fantastic software to do all sorts of things uh, running the spectrum of video production from um, color to special effects to actual editing. But when it comes to sharing the files with clients, there's kind of this hole where you have to use something like Google Drive or Dropbox. And so I was stoked that Something is going to be added to the suite that's going to let me do that seamlessly. Interesting, interesting acquisition for these guys. Now, let's get to OnlyFans, guys. Uh, it's not well, publicly Whoever traded. got away from it? <laughs> well, it's, wait for October. We'll see what happens, how many people get away from it. Now, OnlyFans might not be publicly traded, but we're going to talk about it anyway. Uh, the website announced today that it's going to ban sexually explicit content this fall starting on October 1st. Now, OnlyFans has amassed a base of more than 130 million users, mostly for its adult-oriented subscription, fan, page, fan pages, or otherwise known as porn. In fact, the name OnlyFans is somewhat synonymous with porn, but maybe not for much longer. OnlyFans said it's making these changes to, quote, comply with the request of our banking partners and payout providers. Now, according to OnlyFans, creators will continue to be allowed to post content containing nudity as long as it's consistent with its acceptable use policy. All right. Uh, Many thoughts. Isn't this like (laughs) the NFL getting rid of football, but keeping everything else? Honestly, it very much seems that way on the surface. Other thoughts. I don't know know how much OnlyFans, I don't know much, I don't know that much about OnlyFans business model, but it's, it seemed on the surface to be. A porn model, a porn based. I, all I know is is thing. now the Johnson household. We, we better sell some more ads in this podcast because <laughs> my income stream just took a big nosedive. Your side hustle is over come October 1st. So sign up now. Only one more month left of Corey. What stocks are you drilling down on today? All right. So uh, we'll start with Toyota. Toyota. Toyota trades under TM. Shares fell 4% today, but they're higher by 24% in a year. What is new with Toyota? Well, big news today. Um, and and I, I will say in advance, normally I've got a soundbite. Toyota conference calls are deadly boring. They're in Japanese. The translations aren't very good. But Toyota announced they're going to cut global production in September by 40% because of wow. a shortage of chips. Um, and, you know, they're right along with a lot of other automakers. They kind of resisted this cut, but uh, they're keeping their sales and production targets in place. But still, I don't know how that's possible, this massive cut. Their production cuts in September include 14 factories in Japan and some plants in the U.S. U.S. production is supposed to decline by 40 to 60 percent uh, in August. No layoffs to this point, but uh, a really big thing. And this is all about semiconductors. They can't get the supply of semiconductors there's a new COVID outbreak in Malaysia where a lot of semiconductors are manufactured. So even the problems that we already have look like they might be getting worse in semiconductors. And so Toyota, um, uh, in particular, some of the cars that they make, the RAV4, the Corolla, um, they're going to close production of those cars entirely from September to the 7th, uh, 1st through the 17th. Their Camry and Lexus ES sedans also will not even be produced for the first two and a half weeks of September. So a big change uh, for Toyota here. 
And um, that essentially means that they're going to have something like, call it 70,000 fewer, 75,000 fewer vehicles coming off the assembly line uh, in the third quarter. This just seems so significant. How, now, how are they planning on to avoiding, avoiding any layoffs? Uh, I think they're hoping that it's temporary. They're hoping that things are going to come back. But uh, it's just not making the cars is already going to have a big effect on the global economy. Corey, what is your next drill down? Let's look at Robinhood, which reported its first quarter as a public company um, in, a, in a really elaborate way. There's a lot. Uh, they put out their 10Q, Isaac. 10Qs mm-hmm. are you normally 35, 40 pages. Theirs was over 250 pages. There were so many risks what? and, and uh, things noted in this. So it was definitely worth going through at great length, which I did today. Was there a section devoted to GameStop? Uh, sort of. AMC? Sort of. Okay. So a, Robinhood trades under Hood, H-O-O-D, and shares did fall 10% today. But so talk, walk, walk us through this, um, through these reports that you're talking about. Well, you know, it, you can't step away from the just fantastic numbers that they put out. So uh, the growth was just jaw-dropping. I mean, you offer free trading and people want right. to, and stock market, stocks going up and crypto's going up. People rush to Robinhood. So the revenue of $565 million was up 131%. Wow. They're adjusted profits. And I'm using adjusted profits here. And let me explain why. Because well, I'll tell you why in a second. They're adjusted profits. $90 million in a quarter compared to $63 million a year ago. Why do I, I think it's fair to use adjusted in this case? And you know I'm always making fun of adjusted numbers. Uh, they had a lot of stock compensation expense in the quarter because they just went public. Stock compensation is a non-cash item. They ha- they're required by accounting laws to write it into the income statement, even though it doesn't cost them any dollars. So it makes the numbers look really screwy. I'm willing to do the adjustment here. Uh, their their um, total amount of assets in their accounts, well, sorry, the number of accounts went from about 10 million a year ago to 22, 23 million, actually. So from 10 million to 23 million. And the funds in those accounts also had just a fantastic gain. Um, now, interestingly, also, well over half of the revenues they got were from crypto and the trading of cryptos. So you might think of, the Robin Hood effect as a stock thing, but really it's just as much a crypto thing. Now, to me, one of the most interesting things about this company is their principal source of revenue is order flow. It's selling the, the live data of their customers' trades to certain platforms so they can see them in advance of the trades going through. That's actually legal. Um, doesn't It doesn't officially mean that there's front running going on, but... Um, it is a practice that has come under scrutiny most recently by the Securities and Exchange Commission itself. So if their principal source of revenue is about to become illegal, is that a risk to these guys? And would the payment for order flow be banned? Well, when they were asked about this, uh, their CFO, um, actually, I was, I was pretty surprised. He, he, he looked at that. He, t- he took this issue right on. Uh, here's CFO Jason Warnick talking about the possibility that payment for order flow would be banned. Our view internally uh, is that we don't expect uh, payment for order flow to be banned. Uh, that's just not what we think. Uh, we we expect it to you know uh, uh, you know be an active dialogue. I think that the uh, regulators are asking for uh, you know a study to be done, uh, and we'll definitely engage. Uh, what I'd tell you is that you know uh, with a little bit of context, you know before uh, Robinhood. 
you know, small investors were paying uh, commissions on top of payment for order flow, uh, and it kept a lot of people out. And so, you know, never before uh, has investing in this country been cheaper. Uh, and I think you can see by the 22 and a half million customers that we have uh, that breaking down that barrier uh, of commissions has been just good. Uh, and so, you know, we'll be uh, definitely, uh, you know, defending uh, you know, our customers and, and making sure that uh, we don't put up uh, barriers uh, that have been taken down and kept people out. Now, among the things that they disclosed, you know, first of all, the, when they say they're going to protect their customers, well, who are their customers? The people who pay them? Well, that's the people giving, getting the order flow. So it's not clear if they're going to protect the people getting the order flow or if they're going to protect the people who are making the trades. Um, I, I'm not sure who he's referring to in that um, among the, uh, you asked Isaac about some of the um, uh, disclosures at the end of this 10Q, and among them, interestingly, and I think this was kind of glossed over by the mainstream press, there's a new FINRA investigative request about the non-registration status of the founders of the company um, and what they're going to do and what they have done with their stock. Um, that's uh, We'll see where that goes, but an investigative request can sometimes lead to an investigation. <laughs> Corey, what is your next drill down? I want to look at Synopsis. Synopsis trades under SNPS. Shares rose 8% today, and they've gained 59% in a year. What's new with Synopsis? Fascinating software business that enables people to write uh, and program and create semiconductors. So the design of a semiconductor is something we don't really think too much about how complicated it is. Semiconductor, semiconductor, semiconductor. We're talking a lot about semiconductors. Well, we should. They're everywhere. Yeah, we should. Yeah, we should. And nowhere, all at the same time. Isn't it interesting? We can't get enough of semiconductors. But this company that uh, is helping uh, programmers design semiconductors had a fantastic quarter. They had revenue of $1.1 million in their fiscal third quarter which they just reported this morning, at $4 billion in revenue and 30% margins on that revenue. This company, uh, it's a big company, it's an S&P 500 uh, software company. And really it's all about, you know, whether it's the simplest ASICs programming where the switches kind of go on and off, or you're designing, designing systems on a chip, you need their software to do it. And they've got that market cornered. And what they are seeing is a thing that we've been seeing our entire lifetimes, Isaac, where you've got, um, all kinds of industries turning to semiconductors to change the way their products work. Here is CEO uh, Art Degus talking about how that trend continues apace, whether there's a shortage in the world of semiconductors or not. You know, maybe if I can add something, you can look at it both outside and inside. Starting outside, of course, the, the semi and the systems industries have great opportunities right now because this age of smart everything will actually touch everything. And in some areas, it's going to go very fast and others more slowly, but it is unavoidable that electronics and within that semiconductors and software will add substantial value to every vertical that it will touch. And so that is one of the reasons why you see the semiconductor industry do so well. And the fact that there in some areas are shortages uh, may have nothing to do with that because it's certain specific areas. But in general, it does have to, to do with the fact that demand is high and higher than uh, ability to, to satisfy it. So we expect that the market in aggregate over time will stay very healthy for, for a while. So these guys are seeing that and they're seeing that in the design uh, of, of future products that continues apace, even when it's hard to make those chips. Because as he points out, they're, they're hard to get because everybody wants them. That's probably a pretty good business for them. All right, as I mentioned, probably the biggest story of the day, Illumina 
uh, not waiting for regulators to make a decision in the in Europe or in the U.S., spending $7 billion today to buy a genetic cancer testing uh, company that they'd started to create themselves the really interesting story of Illumina, right from the CEO, Francis D'Souza, joined us today to talk about this huge development. Before we get to that, I have a word from our sponsors. And the drill down is brought to you by Indeed. Here's a big question for every kind of business. When you're hiring, how do you know what's really best and who's really best for that role? We'll save time and screen for quality candidates with the skills you need with Indeed Assessment. When hiring gets hard, you need Indeed, the job site that makes hiring incredibly simple. Just attract, interview, and hire. In fact, with Indeed, you can do all of your hiring in one place, even interviewing. So don't just hope for the perfect candidate. Indeed's hiring tools will help you cut through the noise and hire faster and smarter. In fact, Indeed's instant match provides a list of quality candidates whose resumes are on Indeed the moment you sponsor a post to sponsor job. With Indeed assessments, you can choose from 135 skill tests to make sure you're finding the applications uh, from the people with the skills you need. According to Talent Nest, Indeed delivers four times more hires than all other job sites combined. So join the three million businesses worldwide that already use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Get started right now. Drill Down listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash Drill Down. That's right, Indeed.com slash Drill Down. It's Indeed.com slash Drill Down. Offer valid through September 30. Terms and conditions apply. And remember to join the Drill Down on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod. And check out our website, bizpod.net. Let us know what stocks we should be drilling down on. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast as promised. We have the man of the hour, the CEO of Illumina, Francis D'Souza, joining us. Francis, um, really appreciate your time, especially on such a busy day. You guys announced something that you'd warned was on the way, sort of, but uh, you are just going ahead with this acquisition of this company, Grail, or the pieces of Grail you don't already own, in spite of the fact that it hasn't been fully approved by the European Commission. Yeah, we announced uh, yesterday that we closed on Grail. Uh, and that we were going to keep it as a separate subsidiary of Illumina until we completed the review that's happening in the European Union. This is gutsy. And I, I don't know if it's good gutsy or bad gutsy, but it's gutsy. You guys are going full steam ahead with this. Why, why not wait? No, we felt this was an important step uh, because the technology that Grail has is a blood test that can detect uh, 50 different types of cancers across all stages. Uh, this could be uh, truly transformative technology and can save lots of lives by detecting cancer earlier when it potentially can be cured. What we'd like to do is acquire Grail and make that test available very broadly. So distributed broadly across the US and in the 140 plus countries where we have a presence today through our products. In addition, we want to help get reimbursement for the test. Today, that test is a, is a test you pay about $1,000 for, but our market access teams um, have really deep experience working with uh, reimbursement agencies, uh, insurance companies across the 50 states and around the world. And what we want to do is make sure that everybody has access to the test by making it a reimbursed test rather than just you have to pay $1,000 for yourself. We were in process uh, with the European Union um, uh, to get this deal reviewed, but over the last couple of weeks, that process has, has been delayed, and it's it's become clear now that we won't get a decision from uh, that review before the deal expires on December 20th. 
And so we felt, uh, given how many lives are at stake here, we felt a moral obligation to make sure that this deal, this deal does get reviewed and gets to a decision. And that the decision isn't made simply by the deal timing out on December 20th. And so by acquiring Grail, but then keeping it separate until we get a decision from the European authorities, we felt we achieved both goals. One, we're going to have this deal reviewed and get to a decision, which we think this deserves, given how important it is. But two, we're respecting the European authorities uh, and keeping it separate until until the review is complete and we get a decision from Europe. But is it really separate if if you're using Illumina's ability to get it approved by insurance companies and so on and using the, the experience and might and heft of Illumina to get it uh, cleared for insurance approval and reimbursement? It doesn't sound like it's totally separate. Well, we're only going to start those activities after we have approval from the European Commission. So until then, we're going to keep it completely separate. But once we get approval in Europe, then we're going to start accelerating the distribution of the test, working and getting reimbursement for that test. Now, the the history of this is is interesting. I'm going to I'm going to paraphrase it. You're going to tell me when I'm wrong. It's my understanding. So you guys started this company, Grail. You started this process. You knew it was going to be a very expensive process. At some point, Wall Street expressed the desire that you separate it out because it would look too confusing because you would have big losses as you try to develop this grail technology. It'd be harder to take an outside investment if it was underneath the uh, Lumina uh, umbrella. So you spun it out. And at this point, you maintain about 12% ownership in that. Is that correct? Yeah, it's uh, it's got something else. Let me paint it out a little because it is an interesting story. Uh, back in 2013, our scientists were processing samples uh, for uh, non-invasive prenatal tests that we offer. So this is, you know, blood tests for pregnant moms to assess the health of their baby. Right. And as our scientists were processing the samples, they noticed that the fetal DNA, the baby's DNA was fine, but there was something abnormal with the mom's uh, DNA. And so they alerted the doctor saying, we're not sure what's wrong, but something looks off. And in all of those cases, initially the doctor said, no, the moms are fine. But then those moms went on to develop cancer. And uh, we realized we could be seeing genomic signals for cancer in the blood. And we knew how important that could be. And so we, this is 2013, we put a team on it to work on it immediately. And for the next couple of years, the team worked on it and we realized that it, it could be possible, but you'd need very large clinical studies. And so we spun off the company, retaining ownership first 50%, and then it went down to 15 as we raised almost $2 billion to do the very large scale clinical studies that would be necessary. And so the team went on and developed a test. And, and earlier this year in June, uh, they launched that test in the market. It became clear to us, though, when the team started publishing the data at the end of 2019, that this was going to be a truly breakthrough test. That, you know, by detecting cancer at an earlier stage, you would save a lot of lives. And we know cancer uh, results in 10 million people losing their lives every year, 600,000 here in the US. Your odds of surviving cancer are for a lot of cancers, much higher, greater than 90% if you catch it in stage one or stage two, but less than 10% if you catch it in stage three or stage four. And so what we wanted to do is reacquire the part of Grail that we don't own and then distribute this test more broadly. That's what we want to do here. Um, and that's what we're working through the regulatory authorities for. Let me ask you lastly, what are the financial implications, advantages to doing this now and not in December and certainly not for trying to renegotiate the deal after it, uh, the window expires in December? 
So uh, as we thought through the timeline, it became clear that we weren't going to get a decision by December uh, 20th and the deal expires. And so we looked at, well, what if we extended it? Now, if the if we go past March of next year, then we have to restart whole filing process all over again here in the U.S. and, and restart the regulatory review because our previous filing uh, from September of 2020 would have expired. And that would have meant restarting the year-long plus process all over again. So that wasn't a real option uh, because, you know, Grail's been waiting this whole time and, and having them wait for another couple of years would have been too much. And so this was the window where we now know it's going to extend beyond December 20th where we had to act. Well, um, interesting stuff. We should back up a little bit and kind of talk about what Illumina is and what Illumina does. Absolutely. So what we do at Illumina is we provide uh, genomic sequencers. So these are machines uh, that our customers buy. You put in biological samples into the machine, so spit or saliva or plant material. And what our machines do is they'll tell you where DNA is in that, in that sample. Our customers use this for a whole variety of different reasons. So for example, uh, to fight this pandemic, uh, our customers are using this to track how the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes COVID-19, is mutating. So when you hear about the Delta variant, for example, a lot of the sequencing that tracks uh, the virus is done on Illumina machines. In fact, the first viral genome of this virus, where it was first identified in China, was done on our NovaSeq machine in, in Shanghai. Now, other customers uh, in cancer centers, for example, use our sequencers to profile a, a cancer patient's tumor and match them with the best therapy for that patient. Uh, we have children's hospitals that are customers and they use our sequencers to diagnose uh, kids with genetic diseases. Uh, so we have customers around the world. We have over 7,000 customers. We have products placed in over 140 uh, countries. Um, and, and that's what we do. I think this is such an important year in that, in that it's the 20th anniversary of the first human genome being sequenced. And I remember reading about this way back then, and it was just amazing that it took about 15 years and $2.7 billion to map the first human genome. How long does it take now and what's the average cost? It's astonishing how far we've come uh, since then, Corey. So today uh, you can sequence a genome for about $600 and it'll take you you know, just over a day to do it. And so we've gone from $3 billion for a single genome to $600 from a genome, from 15 years to about a day to sequence a genome. Uh, our top end machines can do 48 genomes in, you know, 48 hours. So you're getting the throughput of, you know, a genome an hour almost, which is totally remarkable. And to your point, this is a special year, I think, for genomics because, you know, it's not only the 20th anniversary yeah. of genomics, but because of what's happened with the pandemic, uh, and the the role that genomics has played in the pandemic, a lot of people are becoming more aware of, of what genomics is and how it impacts our day-to-day -day life. Genomics has really played a central role in the pandemic from first identifying, you know, the pathogen that was causing the pandemic. We were in Wuhan and then did the first publishing of the genome all the way to, you know, providing the sequences that were used to create the mRNA vaccines by Moderna and BioNTech. You know, they've never had the live virus on site. They've just completely used the genomic data coming off our machines to make the viruses. And so there's an increasing awareness of the role genomics plays in so many different parts of our lives. Or to make the vaccines. 
to be clear. Absolutely. Plus the conspiracy yes. theorists here, you say, make the viruses. Well, but let's talk very specifically about this, because I think it's so interesting what happened. You know, not only is it such an important year and amazing, the development we've seen in the, in the sequencing of genome in 20 years, we needed it last year so desperately. So as soon as the, or shortly after the virus was identified, and I, I should mention that the, the initial creation of the Human Genome Project and the mapping of the genome was an international effort supported by uh, governments in Europe, supported by the United States, and supported by China, so that there was a cooperation around the concept of, of and, and importance of genomic mapping. But the Chinese uh, government went ahead and mapped that those first uh, uh, infections and found exactly what the genetic code was for this virus, allowing the rest of the world, who hadn't necessarily seen it or couldn't sample it yet, to immediately get to work on a vaccine. Yeah, it really has been quite a, a remarkable you know, sort of 18 months from that perspective, I said we were called into Wuhan at the end of 2019 when there was this uh, outbreak of a pneumonia of unknown origin. And we worked with the teams on the ground there. Uh, and it was a team actually in Shanghai that used our NovaSeq to sequence that pathogen and published the genome of, of SARS-CoV-2 for the first time on January 10th of 2020. And that sequence sort of kicked off the race for the vaccine around the world. And as I said, you know, man, uh, vaccine manufacturers like Moderna and BioNTech used that sequence to create their vaccines. And, you know, they did it at an astonishing uh, pace. Uh, so, you know, previously, the fastest vaccine we've ever had is about four years, I think, for mumps. The right. average time is 10 to 15 years. Uh, but those teams working with the genomic data were able to move much more quickly and get us the vaccines in about a year. You mentioned Novasec. That's the product you've had in the market for five years. Uh, that that's still kind of the cutting edge, right, for uh, genomic sequencing. Yeah, that's uh, the most powerful available sequencer on the market today. It's our high-end machine. Uh, that's the machine that can do the you know forty-eight genomes in forty-eight hours. Now, your previous uh, big seller, if you will, was the HiSec. Um, how yeah, many HiSecs are still on the market? I think I know that's a number that the people who follow your company look at to see you know, hey, there's still a, a, a certain number of HiSecs still in the market or customers using HiSec, and they will eventually upgrade to NovaSec. Yeah, so the the previous, exactly as you said, the previous uh, highest throughput machine we had was the HiSeq, and it was the, the HiSeq 4000 was sort of the previous biggest machine on the market. Uh, about a third of uh, those machines are still in the market. Two thirds have been upgraded already to NovaSeq. And what we're finding is that you know, as we continue to bring the price of sequencing down in the market, we're expanding the market. So even if you look at NovaSeqs, actually up to half of our of the orders we get in some quarters come from customers that are new to sequencing or new to high throughput sequencing. And so as we march the prices down for the market, we've expanded the market dramatically. So today, for example, we have over 17,000 sequencers out in the market. Those are placed at over 7,000 customers. So 17,000 sequencers at over 7,000 customers across 140 countries. And so we have a very broad uh, customer base. We have other customers that are in children's hospitals that use our sequencers to diagnose children with genetic diseases. Um, and so we have, but we have customers in agriculture, we have customers in non-invasive prenatal testing, all the way to, you know, some customers are looking to see how you could store IT data in DNA and are, are using our machines as part of that effort. So we have customers across many, many, many market segments around the world. Now, let's say I wanted to get one of these machines and put it in my uh, garage. Well, what does it look like? How big are they? So it's, and what's the unit yeah. cost? 
There are, we have a, uh, a sort of a pretty broad portfolio of sequencers. So the iSeq uh, is uh, about $20,000. It's about a foot cube as a system. So you'd get a box about a foot cube that you could set up and, and, and you'd use that in your lab if you want to do a quick run or if you had a few number of samples that you wanted to run. So we have the iSeq and then progressively they just get bigger in terms of uh, throughput and output uh, and size. So it goes from the iSeq to the uh, MiniSeq to the MySeq, NextSeq, and then NovaSeq is the largest machine we have. And they range in price from $20,000 for the iSeq uh, to about just over $900,000 for the NovaSeq. And uh, I, I was joking that I need one for my garage. I, I suppose, I, I wonder what the most unusual or, or sort of surprising usage of the machines or genomic testing that you've seen recently, besides, of course, the daily usage on the Maury Povich show, just to figure <laughs> out whose kid is whose. But besides that, who's the father? What's uh, what, what are the what are the odd uses of this that you've seen lately? Well, there are so many fascinating uses that we didn't think of. Uh, one that I touched on a little bit earlier was the uh, the use of data to store I, uh, the use of DNA to store IT data. You know and it makes sense once you think about it, because, you know, nature has optimized DNA to store data over the eons, right? And so the, the, the problem that people are looking to solve there is they've realized that, you know, there's a lot of IT data being created on the internet every day, in corporations every day, home movies, and that data needs to be stored somewhere. And the challenge is a lot of media being used today just breaks down. If you go to a big data center today, you'll, you'll realize how much time is spent by technicians just replacing spindles and hard drives, for example, that break. Right. And so, so there's a challenge that the media breaks down. There's also a challenge that, you know, most media becomes obsolete in a decade. Try read a floppy disk today, for example. It's, right. it's really hard to find even a floppy disk reader. And so what they're looking for in the IT world is to say, well, what's a medium that can last for a long time without breaking down and that I will be sure that I will be able to read in 50 years or 100 years. And DNA fits that perfectly. It's a medium that is very stable. It can be stable for thousands of years, we know, for, for eons. And I can guarantee you in 100 years, we'll still be reading DNA. In 500 years, we'll still be reading DNA. So whatever you've stored in DNA, we will be able to read. And it's also extraordinarily compact. You can store all the data in the world today in the back of a pickup truck if you stored it in data, one pickup truck. It's just that efficient. And so that's sort of an unusual. Wait, wait. So, uh, so they would, so you would write into what the DNA of a, of a palm leaf or something, all my back emails. I don't understand. You would write it in DNA, all the emails, all the movies, uh, all the data ever created would be written in DNA and stored in organic material. And, and that's exactly what it would look like. And wow. it's incredibly efficient. Now, we're probably still a decade away from that being a reality, but there are definitely teams that are making good progress on it. Companies like Microsoft are working on it. In it's not good news for Seagate or Western <laughs> Digital. <laughs> You know, the, in healthcare too, there are just some astonishingly uh, interesting applications that people are working on. One that just came into the market is a, a cancer screening test from a company called Grail that we are investors in and are in the process of looking to acquire. Trying to acquire despite the yeah. protestations of the U.S. government. Globally, about 10 million people a year die from cancer. In the U.S., it's about 600,000 people a year die every year from cancer. 71% of those deaths are to cancers where there is no screen. 
Now, we know in cancer that your chances of survival are much higher for most cancers or for many cancers if you catch the cancer in stage one or stage two rather than if you catch it in stage three or stage four. And so catching a cancer early is very important. Um, and so I'm hugely excited about the work that's happening in uh, mRNA vaccines and therapies uh, for uh, COVID, definitely, but also uh, there are uh, therapies being worked on using mRNA for uh, other infectious diseases like malaria, but also for cancer, for example. And I think that's you know really exciting. And that combined with the work going on in gene therapies for infectious disease, there's just so much exciting stuff happening in genomics right now. So you brought up the Grail acquisition. The concern seems to be, so the government has opposed uh, this acquisition. You guys are fighting it out. Um, uh, correct me if I'm wrong on anything, please. Um, and uh, it seems that the concern is that Grail's tests, which is so important and so promising, would have an unfair advantage over the other companies uh, trying to create businesses because they would have the lowered costs and lowered access to the market by being part of Illumina. Um, it, is, is, that the, is that the concern? And, and what's your take on that concern? Yeah, the first thing I'd say is that uh, by acquiring Grail, uh, we believe that you know, we uh, will save tens of thousands of lives because we will accelerate that test getting to market and we will make that test more accessible by working on getting reimbursement for that test, for example, across the 50 states in the US and around the world. Uh, today, that test is available as a self-pay test and it costs about $1,000 for somebody to do that blood test. Uh, it's a wonderful test, but we know that price point makes it out of reach for a lot of people uh, here in the US and around the world. Uh, at Illumina, we have a long history of working to get reimbursement for genomic tests. And over the years now, we've reached a stage where there are over a billion people that ha now have reimbursement for genomic tests across various uh, types of tests. And we've had a lot of experience working to get to make that happen. And so we believe we can uh, make the Grail test available more broadly by connecting it with our commercial teams uh, that have a presence and have sold products in 140 countries. We believe we can scale the test up more quickly because we have production labs that run genomic tests that we can scale up their operations more quickly. We also know that you know, we have deep expertise in getting reimbursement for these tests. And so we can work quickly to accelerate reimbursement for the GRAIL test and make it more accessible. The concern we've heard from the FTC is that they're worried about, you know, uh, would we uh, would we continue to provide sequencers to people who compete with Grail? Now, today there aren't any competitors to Grail, so this is a, a hypothetical scenario we're talking about in the future. And you know, from our perspective, I think we have demonstrated now that you know we are uh, very keen to make sure that we develop the entire market for sequencing. Our core business is to sell sequencers. And if you look at other tests where we provide the test, uh, like non-invasive prenatal testing or therapy selection for cancer patients, in both of those markets, we make a lot more money selling sequencers to people who create competitive tests to our tests than we do from our own test. In non-invasive prenatal testing, for example, we make eight times as much money selling sequencers to people who create competitive tests to our tests than we do from our own test. In cancer therapy selection, we make 14 times as much money selling sequencers to competitors of our tests than we do from our own test. And so our business model is to enable many type of tests on the market, including our own, 
And, and to make sure that that continues to be true in, in, in screening, we have put an open offer a letter out, which is on our website, so that anybody can sign that contract with us where we guarantee for 12 years that we will continue to supply them with sequencers and that not only will we not raise prices, but we'll lower prices by over 40% over the next few years. And so we're making a contractual commitment to make sure that everybody's comfortable that it's not only in our business interest to continue to sell sequencers to anybody who wants to compete, but we are contractually guaranteeing it. And would you be willing to extend that beyond 12 years? Absolutely. Absolutely. Interesting. Uh, you, I, and you didn't mention consumables, but obviously a big part of your business also is not just selling the machines, but selling the consumables that go with them, the razor blades that go with those aluminum razors. That's right. And so, you know, you buy the, the system from us and then depending on the application you want to run on it, you will buy the reagent kits, the consumables, you know, for each of those runs that you're doing. Interesting stuff. Um, uh, let me ask you last about proteomics, right? So I've heard it said, I may have said it myself, that, that the sort of the next step after mapping the genome is matching the, uh, is, 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 um, is, you know, the, the actual map of the proteome of the, of the proteins that are the sort of expression of what the genome could do. If the genome's the mass, the map, the, the, the protein is, is the ride and it is where you go. Um, when you look at that, do you see that as potential growth as a company that recently went, went public, uh, named Sear, uh, with, with some former Illumina people that has, is making machines that, that hope to map the, the proteins, um, and come up with more design, uh, designer therapies as a result. Is that an area of interest to you? Yeah. What is fascinating is, you know, biology is incredibly complex. And so you, we keep needing to add to the amount of information we have to understand how, you know, your biology translates into health and disease. And so the genome was is sort of an important sort of foundation. But on top of that, as you're saying, there are other modalities that people are adding additional data. So, for example, there's a whole area of single cell genomics where people are saying, look, we need to understand, although your whole body has a similar genome, your cells are all different and they express, you know, themselves uh, with... Uh, differently. And so we need to understand how the genome is expressing itself differently across the body. And so you have a whole area of single cell genomics. Another area is spatial genomics. So how does that, how does the different expression differ by where you are in a tumor, for example? And so, you know, there's a whole area of spatial genomics that's interesting. There's also the areas you pointed out of proteomics that then provides additional information in terms of, okay, well, what proteins are actually being created, you know, from that genome? And so, you know, we, it's a multi-omics world. And, and so, you know, as we keep moving forward, you see all these additional modalities like proteomics or single cell or spatial that'll continue to enrich our understanding of biology. And again, how your genome translates ultimately, you know, from through the transcriptome and, and, pro, and proteins into health and disease. Uh, but no, no plans immediately to go into proteomics. Our plan uh, is to is to support companies in proteomics. Some companies in proteomics, for example, use our sequencers as the readout technology for right. high throughput readout. And so, our plan today is to you know partner with the companies in proteomics and and provide the technology to help power some of those applications. Interesting stuff. Um, really appreciate your time, Francis Asusa is the CEO of Illumina. Coming up next, the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We mentioned the $2.7 billion spent to uh, by the Human Genome Project and indeed mapping the first human genome in 2001. How much of those dollars came from the U.S. government? We'll have that percentage when the drill down continues. 
The Drill Down is brought to you by Era, a one-stop equity platform where you can seamlessly connect to any earnings call and surface actionable insights automatically. Era's AI-powered tools allow you to work faster and smarter. That's Era, A-I-E-R-A. Your smart speaker is listening to you right now, but you can take control of that thing. Turn to that smart speaker and say, hey, smart speaker. Maybe it's Google, maybe it's Alexa, I don't know. Say, hey, smart speaker, play the Drill Down podcast and you'll hear our latest show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at DrillDownPod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. We're back with the Drill Down Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. We talked about the percentage of dollars that went towards the mapping of the first human genome that came from the government. It was an international effort, uh, Europe, China, all over uh, contributing this, but 50% of the dollars for mapping the human genome, the first human genome, came from the U.S. government, the National Institutes of Health in particular, um, and leading to the kinds of things like a quick vaccine to save the world from COVID. Um, just amazing, Isaac, what's happened uh, in our lifetimes in this field. Yeah, it's and honestly, this, this interview was really fascinating to me. I love hearing the science behind it and how bringing it to market, all the mechanisms behind that. Just, I love this story. It's like a movie. Just like that, except we've been living in real life. It's Not fascinating. Quite as I'll, I'll tell you that I believe that just like the 19th century was the era of the atom and the industrial revolution, and the 20th century was the era of the bit and the digital revolution, we are entering the era of biology and the genome. I mean, and that era, the entry of that era has been accelerated by the pandemic. You know, the-, the 100% and a realization yeah. of it. Yeah, and so it's it's really exciting to see from gene therapies to uh, you know cancer screening to uh, you know uh, reproductive health, whether it's non-invasive prenatal. There's so many parts of of human health that are being impacted so positively by genomics. It'll be really exciting to see you know how this uh, you know how this plays out over the coming years. Look where we've come in 20 years. All right, great stuff, Francis D'Souza, again CEO of Illumina. Thank you very much. I'm Corey Johnson. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson is our editor extraordinaire and the Drill Downs, a production of the Business Podcast Network.